In the following live session recording, Mary McDonald, freelance composer, talks about serving in the trenches, which offers encouragement, support, and solutions to reignite your passion for the call of service through music. The session includes a look at new keyboard books by the session leader. Let's join Mary now. Well, y'all, my plan was to play you a beautiful solo. Oh, okay. The piano has three-step notes. Oh, no. oh, oh you're okay. It is probably oh. one of the worst pianos for a piano class. <laughs> and I don't know that it would do the music justice. I don't want you to say, ooh, I'm not going to buy that. But you're only as good as your instrument. We talked about that yesterday, right? <laughs> so what we'll do is I'll make, I still want to demonstrate some things for you at, at the end of the class when we have time. As I was looking over the outline, and over the course of you've been in all of these classes, we have done four classes total. And you have hopefully the outlines from all of them in the back of the table. There are the other three classes, and you're welcome to get those. But some of the things have bled over into even this final session, and so I may have to repeat a few things for a couple of you for the benefit of all. But this session today is called Serving in the Trenches. And it's just kind of an overview of maybe a summary, if you will, of, of all the things that we've talked about from the spiritual nature of doing what we do, our ministry, and uh, working in the church where you have to work and, and love the Lord and love people. And sometimes you just want to go home and cry, but you, <laughs> you love them anyway. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to speak to some of that and then give you a chance to, to share. If there's some things that you, some needs that perhaps you all have or something, um, that you want to address, we're here kind of as a body. There's not a, a leader here in me. It's just a, a facilitator at best. So please feel free to jump in anything if you have a question. And then I wanted to throw out to if there were any questions that have come to mind over the past three classes that you want to address. Have you thought of anything that you wish you had asked? Has anybody, we can address that to start or dive right into the trenches. Jump into the trenches. If I have one. Okay. Um, for years, I have been playing the keyboard kind of a, as a support instrument. <coughs> and we had a main pianist, and we had guitars and other instruments. Well, now I'm the main pianist. And I'm having trouble with that confidence in leading it. And you, you made a transition from yeah. keyboard to pianist. What is, what is the challenge for you there? Well, there's no one really on the keyboard until recently, and I don't know how long he's going to stay. So I'm like the main predominant lead instrument now. People are listening to me and relying on me to drive the song. Aren't you ready? <laughs> and Aren't I'm not ready? used to doing that. But you're ready. And my confidence isn't where I want it to be. You know, confidence. How many of you feel unconfident in your music? You, you, when you play, you're like, oh, I'm not worthy of this. Mm -hmm. You're the best your church has. <laughs> you remember we talked about that yesterday. You're the best. And it's important to not let your personal self-confidence beat you down. You deserve to know that you have, God has promoted you to this level. Um, I, I used to listen to it more than I do now, but uh, there was a, a woman evangelist who spoke a lot about going around the mountain. And as God finds you worthy of promotion, he will move you up the mountain in your life. And if, if you don't pass that test, if you continue to not better yourself, you're going to stay kind of doing what you're doing. Yeah. So if you're getting promotion, if you're moving up that ladder, he's seeing the value in you. He's seeing, God sees more potential in you than you can see in yourself. What was that evangelist saying? 
Now from Knoxville, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it's about an hour and a half drive down I-75 South, halfway between here and there. And we decided we could load the car about 3. We would get to the church at 5.30, uh, I mean, about 4.30. I could do a sound check, have time to change clothes, and do my concert at 6 o'clock. Well, we came about half an hour within Chattanooga, and the interstate wasn't moving. And you all know what that's like. You live south of the West area, But it wasn't moving. We were just stationary on the interstate. And we sat there for what felt like a half an hour, not moving. And truck drivers are out of the trucks. They're walking around. I said, this can't be good. You know, and I've got to go to a concert. So we had just gotten a brand new cell phone in the car. And it came in this large bag. And it had a rotary dial and a cord. And it cost about a billion dollars a second to use it. And so Brian said, you need to call the church. And so I dialed the rotary dial. got this sweet old lady. And she says, honey, we're excited you're coming to our church. And I said, well, ma'am, we're sitting on the interstate. And we're not, we haven't moved in an hour. And she said, well, now don't come the interstate. You need to come. And also she's telling me Highway 27 or something like that will bring you to the church. So I told my husband, we need to get off the interstate and get on this uh, alternate drive. Well, everybody else was doing the same thing, as you might imagine. Wow. Now we U-turn through the median. We go back two exits, get off on that highway. And to make up time, my husband decides he's going to go through parking lots. I mean, the traffic's just inching. And we've got to get to the church. I've got to do a concert. So we go through bank drive-thrus, and I decide I'm going to change my clothes in the car. So <laughs> I go to the back of the van, and now I've, I've moved the children up to the front. It was back before car seats. You just put them in the front and pray for them, you know. <laughs> and so I'm in the back trying to get my clothes on. And I have this beautiful ivory-colored dress. And it was one of those dresses, ladies. You remember the ones that had the little ivory buttons? Oh, yeah. And they were fabric covered, and you had to pull a little thing around it. It had about 100 of those. Oh. And it went down to here. And it, the 1980s were a time of monochromatic style. And so when you wore these ivory-colored hose, ivory-colored shoes, ivory-colored dress, pearls, and my hair was bleached blonde. I, I just looked like a, a cloud walking through me. But, I'm in the back trying to get all these clothes, my slip on, my pantyhose on, everything. Brian's taking us over speed bumps, and we're going through drive-thrus, <laughs> and, you know, and we pull up to the church at five after six. Oh, my concert's at six o'clock. I jump out of the car. The church is packed. It's a small church. It's about 250 people in there. But as soon as I come through the back door, like a bride. <laughs> And they knew that the situation, they're all waiting on my concert. A beautiful grand piano was right on the stage in the center. So I go straight to the piano, sit down, and I play my opening prelude. After which, the pastor comes and says, now so Miss McDonald can catch her breath, let's have a word of prayer. And you all, I was like, oh. <laughs> and when I'm in, <laughs> I noticed my whole thing. Seven o'clock, and they're to bring a vegetable if they're over fifty. And you're there, and I think, you 
think I can fix this. <laughs> so if y'all know anything about fashion and clothing, this may be new to you. Yeah, but I had to, to fix one button, you gotta undo two buttons. Because you gotta undo two so you can put the hook on the right button. So I'm going down two and up one, down two, three, up one, and I'm buttoning. And you all, it's as if a miracle happened. When I hit that hundredth button, he said, <laughs> and how many people were watching while you were? I told my husband on the drive home, I said, wasn't that amazing that when I hit that last button, the pastor, almost as if God himself just said, you're done with your prayer. He said, Mary, he was praying the whole time like this. <laughs> and Lord, being, I, he was watching me the whole time. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, you know, I thought it's that he was praying for things in uh, next February when it's only October. <laughs> he covered announcements for the next six months so I could get my dress. I guess they saw when I came to the door. I must have looked. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, and that night in a crowd, maybe just 200 people, my love offering was $1,800. Wow. I know. I think I gave them more than a show. What do you think? you know, you're getting a little fashion. <laughs> That pastor's invited me back ten times. I ain't got the heart to go. He said, where that dirty little hot dress? <laughs> you know, I, I, and I, I think about you, and I think how incompetent I felt doing that. And I said, Lord, really? This, this hair, this person, this mouth, this accent? I go up north, I have to have an interpreter. They can't understand. So, he can use us. I have had no piano lessons. He's got me teaching a piano class. How funny is that? <laughs> God can use our abilities. All he wants is our willingness to do it. And he will equip you. There's a, what's the saying that God doesn't call the equipped? He equips the call. We don't have to have all the flourishes and all the doctoral degrees to serve God in his kingdom. All he says is bring me what you've got. What do you do with the little boy and the and the five loaves and two fishes. Oh, How did he bless that child and use what his meagerness, his meager offering to bless and amass the thousands? So what can he do with you? Mercy. It's untold. His, his vision for us is so far exceeding our vision for ourselves. When I was in Carson Inman College, have you ever heard of Carson Inman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's where I went to school. And I was a home economics major. I followed in the footsteps of four older sisters, all of whom were home majors. And my daddy, who here alive today, he would, he would agree with this. He believed all us girls need to know how to cook, sew, and raise kids. That was his dream. That was his, his uh, and mindset. And he wanted us all in home ec. So my sisters had excelled in the department. <laughs> and I was simply given a scholarship to home ec. I did not need to earn it. But I couldn't do home I couldn't do chemistry. I knew within the first six weeks of chemistry, God wasn't calling me into home I was failing college. I had been playing piano and taught myself to play the organ for all of my life. And, and now I'm thrust into this major that I, I don't fit. It was a square box and a round hole. And uh, square peg. And uh, I went to the church there that was at the heart of the campus to uh, First Baptist Church in Jefferson City just to pray. Just to say, Lord, how am I going to tell my daddy I'm failing home back? But a student was playing the organ. 
She was preparing for an upcoming recital. And, and I listened to her for what seemed like a half an hour before gathering the courage to go to her. And as she was making her way off of the organ to leave, I said, may I play the organ? And she didn't say anything to me. She had a little legal pad of like this and a little sign-up sheet with a pencil on it and turned it toward me. And I just signed up to play. There's a date, and I, t- I agreed to play. And it turned out that that day I agreed to play was chapel. Every Friday morning, all the students came together for worship. Now, I never played this organ. It was twice the size of the organ we had at our church. But I just wanted to play and do something I could do. Mm-hmm. I played. I showed up for chapel. I put my chemistry book on that music rack. Couldn't do chemistry anyway. Put it right there. I couldn't read music. I didn't have any music. But I wanted to have something that looked like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I could play and turn my chemistry pages. <laughs> Following that service, the chapel service, I was coming off of the bench, making my way down off the platform when the music faculty was coming toward me. The head of the music department, Dr. Lewis Ball, some of you may know his name, he was coming toward me. And his wife, who was an organ professor, Mary Charlotte Ball, was with him. And they came close to me. I knew who they were, but they had no idea who I was. And I put my hand out to reach his, and he didn't take my hand. He said, who are you? And why are you playing the organ? I said, sir, I'm a freshman home economics major. And this girl told me, I could, I, I'm trying to explain it. He said, did you not know that only our junior and senior applied organ majors are allowed to play here? I didn't know that. She did not tell me that. I just signed up to play. I just wanted to play. His wife, the organ professor, said, excuse me, but were you playing a Bach prelude? Folks, I looked her square in the eye and said, I didn't mean to if it was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know who Bach is. I was playing a Bach prelude that I had learned by ear, listening to our church organist play it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't exactly the Bach prelude. It was Bach with a little bit of rock. It was just <laughs> my own interpretation of that. Well, these two people began to see that I was unique. They took me to his office, and, and it was there that Mary Charlotte would say, would you play, I'm going to play a hymn, and would you play it? And I said, I can play any hymn in any key. I didn't even know what a key was. I said, start here, I'll play it here. I can, start, I can do it right now. I can play any hymn in a minor key. I can play anything I hear by ear. She realized I had a unique gift. Now she gives me a little, uh, a piece of music to listen to. She leaves me alone for 15 minutes. It's called the Chaconne, Cooperin, Cooperin Chaconne for organ. And I listened to it. She came back in the room 15 minutes later and I played it for her. No music, but I played the Chaconne Cooperin. She said, we need this child in our department. I couldn't remember those things. Then she says, would you play me a C major scale? And I said, a who, what? I'd be like you, a what? <laughs> And she says, you don't know where C is? I said, no, ma'am. And she says, this is amazing. She said, you're playing anything, but you don't know what you're doing. I said, that would be me. (laughs) (laughs) She took me as a student. And she began to teach me. And it was a hard process because what she didn't know was, I would go to the music library and and check out the album. An album was this large black round thing that we used to use. And listen to it and show up for lessons and play it fine. I put the music on the rack and I would just assume enough time had passed and I needed to turn the page. I don't know. 
keep playing. She would reach up, turn it back, and point at the manager I was to play. I couldn't read music well, and it was a real struggle for me. I thought, I know, Biz, I need to go back to home ec where I don't know less than I know now. But she persisted with me, and I graduated with a church music degree in Oregon because of that woman. Because of her passion. Now, I may have turned her into an alcoholic. <laughs> but she saw potential in me I didn't see. She, for the first time, had encouraged me to pursue music. And that turned, it was life-altering for me. Somebody believed in me. Somebody encouraged and incentivized me to do music for the first time. Well, I told my mom, I said, can I change to music? And she said, your daddy will not want that. Your daddy will say no. I said, well, let's not tell daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't. <laughs> My daddy never knew he paid for my college graduation in music. He found out at my senior recital, which was in April before I graduated in May. And I didn't like it, but at that point he wanted me out of school, so he quit having to pay me. But God had just enormous plans, and sometimes it, he can take the least of us to do some of the greatest things. And that's the beauty of it, you all, because we're not in a business of working for a corporation. We work for God. The sovereign Lord God Almighty, and He can do so much with so little. I think if we just bring Him and say, Lord, we just give you what we have, and let Him do it, it will far exceed what we try to steer and do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And my encouragement to you today is to let it go. And trust Him with, you, with your life. Trust Him with His plan for you and what He has in store for you. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Serving in the trenches is about letting go. It's about catching the vision and the purpose for your worship. And it's not about your talent. And I, I think that is a big takeaway from all of this. Is it's not about the music. It's really more about, it's about your heart. What we do, because we serve God, we serve Him with a heart that wants to give Him our all. And let Him take the reins of your life and lead and open the doors that will far surpass anything you ever imagined. Vertical worship is something that we have addressed in the very first session, and it's something that I want everybody to grasp. It's a concept that uh, I was first introduced to at a church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The Southwood Lutheran Church is one that I visit almost every year. The pastor there, his wife, serves as a VOP, which means the voice of the patient at a local hospital. The voice of a patient, it enables the patient to have a voice in their healing. And she's an advocate for patients in, in cancer therapy, in, in heart issues. Because there's, they tell you anymore, if you go in the hospital, you better have somebody there who is an advocate for you. Somebody there who is fighting for you because they will overlook you in a lot of issues. Well, as, we, as Janet and I began to talk about being a VOP, I said, that is the healing that needs to take place in worship. We need a VOW. A voice of the worshiper. Because, folks, church has become so much a performance institution where we come from what happens up here and we forget about all the stuff that's going on out here. And so these people come to church needing to be fed, needing to feel worship, and needing to be uplifted to the throne of grace. But it becomes a performance opportunity where the choir sings and you go, wow, that was good music. That was, oh, that was a good sermon that he preached today. 
but it's all running on a horizontal plane. Everything's coming from them to you, and you're giving approval and acknowledgement back to them, but nothing is going on. And so what I want to see happen in churches, what I think will heal the divisiveness and some of the, uh, the exodus that's taking place in church today, is for what's happening up there to engage the people out here, to become the voice of the worshiper. And we do songs that connect where the congregation and where they can join in singing, where anthems are written in such a way that, that the congregation can join in on the last days of, or that the song can segue into a hymn so that they're part of the music they just heard, be it the offertory, be it the anthem. But we need to end an anthem with a hymn so that they are engaged and they are part of what has just taken place rather than a spectator of what just took and what I believe can happen is as we begin to engage, and pastors will come off of this pulpit level and come down into the aisle and come down on the level of, of the worshiper, then he too will be able to engage on a, on a more personal level. And rather than this hierarchy of the pulpit, the hierarchy of the platform and the stage, which is the worst word in the English language, the stage. Worship isn't about being on stage. It's about being on your knees. Worship isn't about being on a stage. It's about being on your knees. I'm a composer of church music, and 40 years ago I wrote my first composition. I travel now 45 weekends a year to different churches, and folks, on Monday morning when I go home, I have to enter into a phase of decompression. What does that word mean to you? Decompression. Think about it. What does it mean to decompress? Letting go of the stress and the worries. Yeah. Is Sunday a work day for you guys? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Remember the Sabbath day and why? Is it a holy day? Is it a work day? When I grew up, and I'm 63, so it's been a while. We didn't go out to eat on Sunday. There was no restaurant open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We went to grandmother's house. But it was a quiet day. There was no TV in my house on Sunday. We didn't have TV until I was about 13 anyway. But there was no TV. Y'all remember those days? There was nothing open on Sunday. There was no games. No. There were no ball games. There were no ball practices. Mm -hmm. Sabbath day was holy. It was a quiet day. It was a day of rest. And folks, our secular world has crept in and overtaken that day and made it into a, just another day. It's really one of the busiest days. It wears me flat out. Yeah. And if I don't come in on Monday and decompress, let it go, I can't receive what God has in store for me to do next. If you're feeling stressed or a lot of anxiety in your life, it's because you're not decompressing. You're staying in that level of performance of got to do the next thing, got to do the next thing, got to do the next thing. Astronauts fly up into the moon or to wherever they go, when they come back, they have three days of decompression. Do you know why? Anybody? To adjust to their gravity versus... Gravity. It's gravity because they have been floating without gravity. When you come out of the gravity, into gravity, you will fall down. 
you're not used to using your muscles to sustain you. And they all, immediately when they hear the Earth's atmosphere, they're going to drop. They're going to fall. They fall in their, uh, their orbitory. So they spend three days trying to regain their footing. And I think, how often do we do worship on Sunday, but we don't regain our footing on Monday? We're going right back in worship. Let's go. Let's reevaluate. What did we do yesterday? What do we need to fix next week? What's my car going to do this week? What am I going to play this week? We're already in for the next thing. As a writer, I have learned that when I have finished a weekend, a concert weekend, and I come in on Monday, I have to be alone. And I have to be quiet. I have to be still and know that he is God. And I sit in my office in total quiet. I don't turn on Finale and start writing that book or that next project. I sit in quiet. Over my desk is a sign that says, be still and know that you sit in the presence of a great God. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing, I read it every Monday morning because it reminds me to center myself. Get centered back on God and what he has for you. After you feel that you have decompressed, you need to abide in him. This is a four-step process. The first is decompression. The second is abiding. What does abiding mean? Anybody? Abide. Stay. Sit alongside. Sit alongside. Just stay. What else? To meditate, I think. Abiding. In my word abiding, if you... If my word abides in you, then ask what you, I'm, I'm not getting that verse right, but yeah. it, it's, it's to me when you're talking about yeah. being in the Bible, it's about meditating on his word. And, and, you're and with just, him and he's with you. I was going to say it, it's, it's a continual presence. He's with him and, and you're with him. Uh -huh. it's, it's, I, I go home and I will abide with my husband tonight. We will sit at dinner and re, reconnect. I've been away four days. We need to reconnect. It's that abiding. It's just being. We don't have to talk. And God, oftentimes abiding isn't praying. Don't confuse that. Because prayer becomes another, it's another whole facilitator. Just abiding is sometimes just sitting. When God tells us in his word to be still and know I'm God. Abide with me in my presence. That just means to, to just, just sit there in his holiness. And take it in. Just let it wash over you. You don't have to pray. Just let him wash over you. And it's, it's through that that you are cleansed. It's almost as if you're, you're renewed. You're renewed. Your strength is renewed. The third part of this is after you have decompressed and now you're abiding in his presence, you're ready to receive. Receive what he has for you. What is the next thing God is ready to give you? And that for me is a composition. It's like I, in, in the end of my abiding time, it's like, Lord, now I'm ready. And listen, folks, there's sometimes he doesn't get it. Because I think he knows I'm just saying words and I don't, he knows my heart. And he says, you're not ready to have this. And I'll sit there and go, yeah, I'm not going to write anything today. Because there's obviously something, there's a barrier, something in me that needs to be dealt with before I can receive his anointing. Receiving. Receiving. What am I supposed to do this week? What am I supposed to play? What if, Lord, what, if, what, you, what would you have required to do this week? Abiding and receiving what is the next direction God has for you. The fourth is transformation. Because now that you have received, you're transformed into a newness of what is next on your agenda. Those four things have to operate in that succession. 
What was the fourth? Transformation. Transformation. It changes you. You, you will find that everything you do falls into a more flow, a godly flow, because he is now directing your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? He will direct your path. If you find you're struggling in the trenches, perhaps you're trying to guide your own path. And the only time I've ever steered my path, I've steered myself into a cliff. It has not gone well. But when I abide and I receive and I'm transformed, God has been able to do things far exceeding above anything I ever dreamed or imagined. Mary, do you find um, in your writing that um, I, I know you probably said some kind of goals, I'd like to get this accomplished here, but uh, being sensitive to not writing when you don't have, right. there's some people that just like to, that, that they have to write and they write something and nine times out of ten it's a piece of junk. And um, but they keep cranking it out, hoping that they're going to hit the. Do you think God gives you more when you wait on Him than if you uh, try to do? It makes them better, yeah. There's a lot of times I have to meet a deadline, and I don't love everything I've written. I haven't sold everything I've written, you know. And I, I, I kind of just I write every day. If I'm not on the road, I'm home. I am writing. I write 93 pieces of music last year. They include wow. books, musicals, and choral anthems. 94 the year before that. So I do write every day. It's not all good. But I think I think in our life, in our journey, whether you're writing or you're playing or whatever your calling is, keep moving. Keep moving, <coughs> making progress in a direction. And then if you're, if you're a non-steerable car, imagine a car that's in park, how fast can it go? It doesn't matter if it's a Maserati. Be in Illinois, we're in park, right? So you want to be moving forward. For me, that means putting notes on the I recently, just as recently as three weeks ago, wrote an anthem four times. But I was writing it. The fifth time was a charm. <coughs> when I did my reading, Then Sings My Soul, in 2011, which was my best-selling song in the last 10 years, this song has been translated now in every country in the world. It was the third version of it that I did that finally was right. The other two I forced. One was a gospel version of How Great Thou Art. Can you even imagine? And the Lord killed the power in my house with a storm that only hovered over my home. And it wasn't even predicted. It was supposed to be a beautiful day. And all of a sudden the storm, and I'm writing this gospel, How Great Thou Art, and boom, lightning hits, knocked out my microwave, my washing machine, and my computer. God himself just went new. <laughs> when I went to reboot my computer, about 36 hours later, when power was restored to our neighborhood, it was gone. And it was, that was the second version. So it was after that that I wrote. I said, Lord, I don't think you wanted that. Anoint me with what you do. And he gave me a song in two and a half hours. That's been my best song in 15 years. He will stop us in our track. If we're, if we're looking upward, if we're vertically ascending in our work, in our worship, he will stop us. But we need to keep moving forward. He can't stop you if you're not moving, right? Yeah. So yes, keep riding. And then some of this junk, some of it gets published. <laughs> because it's the best of the worst. Yeah. Um, I want to move on because I don't want to dwell on this. I hope you all are kind of getting the idea of all of this. 
having um, the choir in worship. Let's move down to that, that area there. Uh, as I mentioned, I travel every weekend, and I have seen every kind of church, and I've also met every possible. I can't think there's any more ministers of music than what I have met. But I can tell a difference in the choir by the attitude of ministering music. It is amazing to me to go in, and I was picked up by this minister of music and his wife at the airport in Iowa. And when I, I went to meet him, I'd never met him, and his name was Dr. Bruce Nelson. And, and I said, hi, it's a pleasure to meet you finally. He goes, Ms. McDonald, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. This is my wife. And he's got this game show voice. You know? <laughs> and I think, wow, this is, you know, who is this guy? He should do dramatic overreads for something. And he says, we're going to take you to dinner before we take you to your hotel. And it's all this formality, you know. And, and I didn't know really quite what to think. I was off put by it. It didn't seem normal. When we get in my bag, if you got all your luggage, great. Well, what? Pull the car around and what would you do? I'm already sick of the weekend. I'm ready to go home. They get me in the back seat of the car, and we're driving down. I said, we're going to take you around and show you this. We have a reservation for you. And all this stuff. And I started texting my husband, this is going to be a long weekend. His wife says something. Finally speaks. She has not spoken other than hi, nice to meet you. He says, why don't we go to show her this thing? He says, well, I was going to take her there, but I thought it would be a, you know, we make, the traffic's going to be bad and we won't make it. Well, we can still go back. Let's go to the background. She, he says, okay, we'll go there. Miss McDonald, we're going to take you to the background. By the, I said, no, no, no. Wait, I want to talk to that guy. I want to know that guy. And I want to know you too. I didn't say any of this, but I think, talk to me like you just talked to your wife. Use that voice. Don't use this formal voice. This Preacher stepping on the tiptoe voice thing. I can't stand it. It, it, was, it was so fake to me. And then I got into this choir and they're all they're all assuming he's using that voice with them. And I thought they need to know real. They need, I heard him do real. I know he's capable, but he's got this church personality. And it took me about half a day Saturday to break them. To where finally we could just all be real. And by the end of the week, he was using his real voice. And I thought, thank God for sending me here to break this man of this church role that he had gotten locked into. I've gone into churches where the, the ministry is a comedian. And they're the funniest bunch of them. They're laughing, they're, they're bright. And when they sing, they sing with great exuberance and joy. It seems like whatever personality the music leader has marries with the choir. Why do I tell you all that? Many of you are the accompanist. But I do believe that people look to us for leadership. And if you come in with a sense of, it is so great to see you, I'm glad you're here, that's going to welcome them. You feel <coughs> welcome with that kind of an attitude as you would have, please come in and be seated here. Have a seat here next to me. I don't know that I would feel as welcome with that. I would go sit in the back or maybe just lie right back. <laughs> <laughs> We need to welcome people. I wrote a song maybe five years ago called By Our Love. They will know us by our love. We should see with our eyes and wrap our arms around them with love and let people know that we're just one of them. We're all the same. We're all struggling to make our way in this world. And we love one another. We equip one another with encouragement and inspiration. Oh, wow, what a better church we will be. I do a lot of uh, MC work for a, a music dealer in the country, and I do about maybe 
nine conferences a year for her, for Kinky Music. And as an MC, I'm there before everybody leaves and I'm there after they leave. But for the entire conference, I'm on stage introducing everybody. And <laughs> years ago, that's from the light you can't. Who doesn't speak? And that's really fun. But years ago, when I first started doing reading sessions, and this was in the 1986 time, there was a man who was the MC at the Kentucky Music Sessions, and he was so great. But he kind of became a father. I was the only woman doing this. I have pioneered for women in this industry in a lot of ways, but this was one of them because it was a man's club. In a lot of ways, it still is a man's club, as was evidenced by the Go Georgia Church Music Conference two days ago. It was all men and two women. But, uh, more women than that. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it, was, uh, it still is largely a man's club, and most of the publisher representatives are men. But I was this young woman with two kids, and I was trying to show my music and to, to uh, expose the little rooms publishing company, the company for which I worked for 30 years. And um, this MC became my mentor. I would come off the stage, and he said, let me talk to you about what you did. And he would coach me. He said, this is what you did wrong. He said, you should be able to read a crowd, and they were not with you. You should have stopped that song, gone into this song. And I made notes on the music. Look out when you're playing. Look out and see what they're doing. They folded the music. Stop reading the song. You know, and I was making all these mental and physical notes on the music. And I did conference after conference after conference. I can read a room like, I can read you all right now. <laughs> so I'm making eye contact with everyone. But there is something to being able to look at your audience and seeing what the need is. Have you got them or have you lost them? Mm -hmm. And that's the difference in being a successful speaker or not. And Lynn told me uh, one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. And you might want to write this in your own words. What you do off stage is more important than the hour you spend on it. What you do off stage is more important than the hour you spend on it. I would get up for an hour, guys, and do a presentation. And then I would go back on the plane and fly home. I did that for 10, 15 years. And then as I became the MC, I learned I have to be there for the whole conference. And it was there I began to build relationships. And that's why I'm doing 45 weekends a year in churches around the U.S. because I have built relationships through these conferences with people who say, we want you to come to our church. Before, I didn't invest myself in a relationship with the people, the constituents <coughs> that came to the, con to, the, to the reading session. And when I learned it's not about that hour, it's about the hour after, I began to relay that message to new writers. Heather Sorensen, she was here last year, uh, Ten years ago, we were together at a Pine Lake conference, and she had done a presentation, and then I had done one, and we were sitting there together, I think Joel Brady was up, she said, well, they're going to take a break in a minute, so I'm getting out of here. And I grabbed her, I said, no, you're not. I said, stay, this break is more important than your hour up there. And she stayed, she booked two concert weekends, and she said, thank you for making me stay. And what we don't realize, folks, is that in church, it's not about that hour of worship. It's about what are you to those church people? Do you greet the choir with, with compassion and with encouragement? Do you send them notes? I missed you. I looked for your face Wednesday night and you weren't there. And I want to make sure you're okay. We have a note ministry in our church, in our choir. And folks are just 
a white regular sheet of paper that the music secretary cuts up in squares, and they're laying in a basket. When you come into choir room, you pick up a handful of those. As different parts are being worked with, so part, if you're in the alto and you're working on the men's, you write a little note, and on our sheet, it has a list of who's having surgeries, who has a birthday this week, who has an anniversary, who hasn't been to choir in a month. And you write a note to whomever you want to on that list. You may just say, missing you, hope you're back at choir soon. You don't have to know them. In fact, there's oftentimes we don't know everybody in the choir or everybody's name. So just thinking of you, happy anniversary, happy birthday, whatever, it takes two seconds. You sign your name, you fold that white piece of paper. At the end of choir rehearsal, a basket goes like an offering plate down every aisle. And all the notes are placed in the basket. The next day, Thursday morning, the music secretary takes them, stacks them by name to the recipient, and you may get an envelope this thick of all the notes that came from those choir members. I can't tell you what that means to be on the receiving end of those notes. I don't know everybody. I was just in the hospital about two months ago with um, having part of my intestines removed, and I received so many notes from people I don't know, from choirs all over the country. I don't know. And one of the, one packet of notes, 200 cards fell out. And they fell all over me. My husband opened them. I'm laying in the bed. And, and, and when he opened them, they opened like a bag of potato chips. And they just went all over me. And it, at the time, I was in a bit of a relapse. And I didn't think I was going to survive. This was the second week in May. Uh, this year, my good friend David Schwebel's wife, David Schwebel, anybody? Mm -hmm. Wonderful writer, composer, and lives in Richmond. His wife had died of what I had um, just several months prior. And so I was afraid I had it. And I talked to Dave and I said, what happened to Michelle? And he said, you need to get back to the doctor. So in my mind, I, I, was, I was not going to make it. And this was just in May. But when Brian opened all this envelope and all these cards fell all over me, he's trying to grab us to stop. I'm covered in prayer. And I said, just let me lay here because people are praying. And knowing people I didn't know were praying for me healed me. You know, my spirit. All of a sudden, I wasn't so dependent on worry about it. I'm not going to make it. I knew that they were praying for me. And it got me through. I didn't know the people on those cards. But I knew, they, I knew the Lord that they served. So I, I'm encouraging you to hope to invest in a ministry of notes. Paper, it doesn't matter what, but get your choirs involved in doing that because it's such an encouragement, such an incentivizer. I'm sorry, I'm just jumping all over this outline. Okay. We used to do that. I had the same experience. I had the Gillian Barrier virus, right. and then they found cancer. Mm -hmm. I had people everywhere playing. And call. Didn't it give you strength? Mm -hmm. Yes. There is strength in prayer. There's power in prayer. Yes. I don't ever underestimate no, it. Ever ever you estimate God. No. What exactly. you can do. That's the great takeaway from this today, yeah. Um, I mentioned on here choir and worship. One of my greatest joys is to go to churches and to, to be able to share my heart and my story because folks, they sing my music differently when they know the story behind the song. If they hear how a song came to be written, it changes the trajectory in which they sing it. Yesterday I shared a story of what a friend we have in Jesus. And 
Today I'm going to share another story with you. It's a story of a Scottish physician. His name was William P. McKay. Have you ever heard the story of William P. McKay? It's an amazing story. It, it, it really, um, I, don't, I don't even know how I heard this story, but it's, it's so powerful. He and his mother were, um, were very close growing up because his father, at the age of eight, his father walked out on him and his mother and left her to raise their son on virtually no income. They had very little. But Mama had church. She saw to it that William was in church. She, they were a devoutly religious mother and son. They went to church. But it seemed like the more he grew older and the more Mama pushed him to go to church, guess what happened to William? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you might imagine he stopped going altogether. But this mama was devout. She continued to pray for her son, and eventually he ran away from home. She lost all contact with him that day. All we know next is that William became a physician. Somehow or other, he had found his footing in life, became a doctor. And he worked in a hospital in the emergency room ward. And every afternoon, William P. McKay would make his rounds in the hospital ward. One afternoon, an old elderly gentleman was admitted to the hospital, and, and um, he seemed to be a bit of a homeless sort. But William went to check on him, and after examining him, realized there was nothing he could do to save this man's life. So he told the old gentleman, he said, we want you to be as comfortable as you can. Is there anyone we could contact or call for you? And the old man said, I have no family. I have no one. But I need to pay my rent. Said, if you would contact my landlady, she will come. I have her money. The nurse did as instructed and contacted the landlady. But the old man the next day said, Would you please bring me my book to the landlady as she came to visit? The old lady did as instructed, and the next day, when Dr. McKay was making his rounds, he looked in on the old gentleman, and he's holding this book clutched tightly to his chest, but he has the sweetest countenance of peace on his face as he slept. This went on for three days. Every afternoon, Dr. McKay checked on the old man. Every afternoon, the same. So finally, the old man passed. The nurse came and said, Dr. McKay, what are we to do with his things? He said, well, he had no one, no family. He's paid up on his rent. So I imagine we just call him work. But bring me that book. <laughs> the end of the work day, Dr. McKay goes back to his office, as you can imagine, just sits down to rest. There on his desk lies this big book. He realized that there was no, no title on it, the pages were torn and, and very worn. He opens back the cover, and at the very top of the inside page, W.P. McKay. <laughs> It was in his own Bible. He had sold it on the street to buy food when he was homeless. And somehow it fell into the hands of this old man. And now, uh, years later, the Bible has circled its way back to his own desk. See, that mother had been praying for her son, and those prayers did not go unanswered, unhindered. God led this Bible back to the owner. And this Bible now became the source of his conviction. As he thumbed through the Bible, he began to pin on his prescription pad, may our souls be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, not the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Revive us again. 
Yes. And if you know that story, and you relate that to your congregation, how they sing that song with fervor and with newness and a revived spirit. They're singing, revive us again. And folks, we need revival. That's what we need more than anything right now. The churches are, are hurting. They're dying. They're going somewhere else to find their healing, but it lies right there. And we folks, as the leadership, are guilty of being the ones who put out the flame. So what do we do? We find personal worship. We need to pray. We need to meditate. We need to find ways of spiritual growth. And for me, that means not growing me inward. It means growing me outward. Growing you to be more compassionate. To care more about people you maybe don't know. To reach an arm, of, an extend an arm of encouragement to a young person. And say, I believe in you. Keep doing what you're doing. When I was eight years of age, I had been playing the piano for three or four years, played anything at this time. We had an old upright piano. And whenever mom and dad had company, which back in the old days, everybody had company on it. Aunts and uncles came in kind of consistently. And um, my uncle Homer was visiting from uh, a city, and uh, it was a Saturday night. Now, I always knew when it was going to come time, mom would say, Mary Beth, go play the piano for your whomever. I was always the entertainer. <laughs> I don't think they made fun of me or that she really liked the way I played, but uh, I did doing it. My other sisters were scattered to the wind. They would never sit in there, but I would be in there and get called to the piano. And uh, it was a real rainy night, Saturday night, and I knew I couldn't escape it. The quiet pause had happened. Very bad. Why don't you go play something for your uncle Homer? I go to the piano like this. Not wanting to do it. My body language is no. But I sat down and folks, I don't even remember what I played. But I played something. And when I finished, the most amazing thing ever, Uncle Homer walked over and reached down and handed me a quarter. A quarter! <laughs> Which doesn't sound like that much. Today, maybe five dollars to be today. He handed me a quarter. And it meant the world. I'm, I'm the youngest of six kids. I, everything I wore was a hand-me-down. Everything I had had been used 14 times over. And I had my own quarter. I was just like, wow, I could be paid to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I running every time? I could have been, I, I could make millions. <laughs> my daddy had an old billfold. You don't remember those little oval-shaped rubber billfolds mm -hmm. that had a flap that slid across the top and you squeeze them and you change them. Yeah. Well, Daddy handed me a home federal bank billfold and I put my quarter in. Oh, I, I just popped it open just to look at the quarter. It was a treasure. And and I remember the, the next morning, here we are going to church. I slept with that quarter bank with it. I'm taking it to church with me. Now, going into church with something. To see all of us McBees lined up, I was the youngest, I was on the end. We're stair-stepped all the way up to my oldest sister, and then my mom and my daddy. We're all dressed in the same bolts of fabric. Now, my mama, <laughs> my mama was a seamstress. She would buy one bolt of floral fabric and make five dresses for the girls and make my brother a floral shirt. So here we are all custom-tailored, exactly the same, going inside. I'm holding my sister Ruthie's hand, and my billfold is here. It had rained the night before so badly that we're going up a hill. Our church sits on the side, and when I opened my little billfold, the quarter got caught in the flap, and it fell out into the, to the water that was running down the curve. 
curb. And, and my sister's pulling me along, and I'm, I'm like trying to reach and grab my quarter, but it's, it's too fast, and it's gone, and I can't let go of my sister. So if any of you find a quarter, <laughs> you're south of Tennessee, so it's down here. I don't Why do I remember that story? What was it about that that has never left me? What did that quarter mean to me? The importance of it. It wasn't the value of the quarter. No, it was appreciation of what it meant to you. That you have something that that he really enjoyed. Yes, and that encouragement that incentivized me to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. It was that little tiny nugget of encouragement that that made me go, "Okay, I'm gonna." Mama never had to beg me to play anymore. I didn't get paid a whole lot more, but <laughs> I loved doing it because I felt appreciated. Mm -hmm. If you have people drifting from your choirs and your programs. Largely because they feel unappreciated. And we can remedy that really easy by showing value, by offering, extending an arm of, we miss you, or, hey, would you come and do something with me? Would you play a duet with me? Find a way to be an encourager to somebody else. That's the spiritual growth of reaching outward. And you will grow inward by just doing an outward move. Um, I want you just to real quickly think about somebody who made a difference in your life. Just a, a name. Just shout out a name for me, Mary Charlotte. Anybody. A name. Somebody that impacted your life. Deward. Who? Deward. Deward? Birdie. Birdie? My mom. Joan? My mom. Mom. Anybody? Doc. No music teacher. You have somebody? Mm-hmm. An older gentleman who was over the music when I was a little thing, mm -hmm. and I could he, the the presence of him and his face will come back to me a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? Thank God for those people because they have made a difference in your life. And if I, I look back over the last sixty-three years, and I can probably count on one hand the number of people who have been put in my life at the right time, the right place that made a difference. Home act, music. Graduation, church. Church, publishing. Publishing, opportunities like this. And people who have, have steered my life's path in such a way that enabled me to accomplish what God had set out for me to do. I call it my GPS, my God positioning system. <laughs> and I believe he does, he does put people in your path that will steer you along the way. Thank God for them and pray that you can be a GPS move for someone else. Because that's, listen, we have three young people in here, but a lot of us have already passed that point where we need that encouragement. We need to be that for others. And so may we be someone else's GPS point. I think that the last and final thing, my son is my prayer warrior. And, um, I want to talk to you about being a blessing. We're going to wrap this up. When I was a young mama having to travel so much, it was hard on my kids. Usually my family, my dad was the one who traveled. And most often it is the men who go. But I was the, the mama who left. It was hard, and my kids got older, I was missing things. I missed games, I missed concerts, to have to be away on the weekend. 
And many times I sat on the airplane in tears, like, Lord, I want to serve you, but make this easier. And he gave me a story. Once my kids had come to know the Lord, uh, I sat them down and shared this story with them, and I want to share it with you, kind of wrap it up. I said, kids, God is going to prepare a place for us in heaven. And I like to envision things that we can't even imagine, because we can't understand mm-hmm. what heaven's going to be like. I don't even, I can't even fathom. But if you could just go with me a minute in your imagination and, and think about this large mansion that has been prepared for all of us. And, and down as far a corridor as you can see, in any direction, there are these large boxes. And they're gift wrapped, all right? You see a large gift wrapped box. And it has a beautiful ornate bow on top. And if you could raise the lid back and see in the box, it's filled with all shapes and sizes of gifts, beautifully ornately wrapped, individual box. And, and it's just as far as you can see, it's just filled. And as you grow up through your life, and God gives you an opportunity to serve him and do something for him, I think that lid is raised back and you receive a gift in the form of a blessing or an incentive or a motivator. There's something in that box that you receive by saying yes. And we are all equipped with a large box of opportunities. And I want my kids to say yes. Just as I say yes, I will follow you, Lord. I will go where you lead me. I will do what you call me to do. And my prayer for them and my prayer for you is that when we get to heaven and there is such a box and it says Mary or Lisa or who, anybody, and they say, I want you to see your box. And they lift the lid back. didn't need one blessing untapped. My kids both serve the Lord. My daughter is a Christian, uh, works as a music teacher in a private Christian school and leads worship on Sunday in that school. My son is worship pastor in Gainesville, Florida. They know what it's like and what it means. It's not easy to commit and to say yes. We tie up every weekend, folks. Every weekend. By saying yes. But do you receive a blessing because of what you do? Yes. Yes. Say yes. Follow through on the commitments. And, and yes, you're going to be tempted to say, I don't feel like it, but you're here. What an inspiration that you're here. Going through all you're going through. <coughs> I, I have just come off of two trips and I'm heading to Vancouver from here. Oh, wow. I don't stop. But I said, yes, and God gives me the strength and the power to do what I have to do. He has called us to a great and mighty task. And all he's looking for is a willing heart, a willing servant. And it's easy for you to just say, no, I don't feel like it today. But you'll be blessed if you say yes. My son being my prayer warrior, every, every time I'm on the road, he writes, where are you? How can I pray for you? And I wrote him this morning, I said, pray for our final day and uh, that things will go well today. He always concludes our texting with the same words, Mom, go get your blessing. Because he's learned what, what the payback is. It may not be salary, but serving God is the greatest reward you can ever get. Amen. So, may this turn your perspiration into inspiration. 
Have you been inspired? I hope so. Amen. And I hope that the people who interfere with your life, you will persevere through and find the joy. In things that agitate you will become accommodations of your worship and your fellowship in your joy. Uh, that's really all I had to say. Do you have any questions? And I'd like to share a few of the new products with you in closing. Any questions or anything anyone feels led to share? And to repeat your last phrase. Turn your yes, fellowship pers no, perspiration into inspiration. Yeah. at the bottom of the page. Yeah, into inspiration. Yes, Lisa. I'm so sorry, but I, I can't sit here and not say this. Please. Um, because I love it. Um, I was so touched um, Thursday night by that story that you shared about the song, um, Singing Not Be Not Silent. Would you share that again for these people who have not heard it? Yeah, it, it's, it's quite a powerful story. Um, the Jubilaires, who has the Jubilaires? Two of us. Uh, have sung their opening piece, right? The no, second. The procession or something. To a piece I wrote in 1988. It's called Sing and Be Not Silent. Have any of you heard it's it? It's amazing. Sing to the Lord and Be Not Silent. It's all scripture based. It's all original. There's not a hymn inclusion in the piece. Um, about a year ago, January, Joseph Martin, who's a wonderful friend and composer, Joel Rainey, uh, is one of my best buddies, the three of us were in concert together in Houston, Texas at a large church that was housing a Voices and Praise conference sponsored by J.W. Pepper. We fly in on Thursday to do a workshop with the choirs. Each of us have two choral anthems that we will rehearse with choir and orchestra. And then on Friday evening, we come together and do a concert of that music. And then we each play or share some testimony. And it's just a wonderful time. We do these about four times a year. Well, this particular January, when we got there, Joe Martin went to rehearse the choir. And the minister of music at Tallywood Church in Houston took me over to a transept and he said, I want to give you our church's latest CD. We titled it, Sing and Be Not Silent. He said, this song has become our choir's favorite. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, he wanted me to have it. Well, I was honored to receive that and thanked him for it. But he said, I need to share with you a story about what has happened with this song. And folks, the story that he shared with me changed my life. And this was uh, just a year and a half ago. And I don't know how you feel about heaven's stories, but uh, at least this request I will share it with you. The minister of music, Carlos Ictor, his daughter had recently married a young man from northern rural Arkansas. This uh, man grew up in a church where they didn't have choir. The very small little country rural church where at best, whenever the King Times are singing, anyone who wanted to went to the loft. They just picked the hymn out of the pew and walked up. There may be five, there may be even ten of them. Standing up there, mama holding a two-year-old in one hip and holding the hip on the other, they would sing and agree upon him. That was the extent of their choir program. No choral music at all. Now he's moved to Houston to go to school where he met Carlos's daughter. And they fall in love, they get married. He's exposed now to one of the grandest choirs in all of Houston, Texas. And this, imagine the culture shock of just that. <laughs> in August, before the CD released in December. His 10-year-old sister was involved in an accident that stopped her heart. And for a little over a minute, they tried to resuscitate her, finally reestablishing a heartbeat. The CD was released the 1st of December so that everybody in the choir could give it as stocking stuffers or Christmas gifts. And he gave one to his mama back in Arkansas. 
Now, the week after Christmas, the mother is driving this fully recovered 19-year-old girl down the roads of northern rural Arkansas. And she says, why don't we listen to your brother's church's CD? So the little girl opens the CD jacket and pops it in the plane of the car and we're driving down the road. Immediately, the first cut song is sing to the Lord, and it starts with an orchestra. The little girl perks up, and as the choir begins to sing, the little girl begins to sing. Sing to the Lord, and be not silent. Singing the notes, singing the words of a song she could have never, ever heard. As the song continues, thou hast turned my morning in, she's singing it. And by the time the song is moving on to you know, the midway point and beyond, the mother stopped the car and watched the little girl continue to sing with joy. She, after the song finished, she stopped the player and said, Honey, how do you know that song? The little girl looked at her mom and she said, They were singing it in heaven. <clears throat> and he said, I just thought you need to know that your music's in heaven. And I, I didn't know what to say. I went to dinner that night with Joseph and Joel and I relayed the story to them and the three of us just looked at each other for the longest time, not knowing what to do with that. Finally, Joe Martin, if you know Joe, he's a little bit of a clown, but he says, Mayor, do you think maybe it was there first? Oh. And at that moment, we realized we're not composers. We're conduits. And somehow God is allowing us to hear the music of heaven and to pin that music is a way of maybe offering hope to congregations. Of a way of giving you something to hang your hat on and to say something better is going to happen. In choirs, you're being prepared to be the choir leaders in heaven. This music we're singing here didn't birth here. It was born there. And in that receiving and that abiding, God is enabling us to hear through this portal. And, and my goal is that, yes, the music comes from God, the creator of the song. It comes into our pen. It goes from us to the, to the publisher, and they print it, and then to the dealer who sells it, to the minister of music who buys it, to the choir who sings it, to the congregation who's inspired by it, and who collectively would lift the music right back <coughs> to the giver of the song. And in doing so, it fulfills the cycle of the song. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you. So I pray that what you do, you see your best in interest. You see where you are in that, in that circle. We are all vital to the call of Christ. And I hope that encourages you to keep doing more. And I hope it encourages your fire uh, to keep singing because they're getting to sing heaven's song. I want to share with you just a few new products. I went over to the JW bookstore. There's several there on the table you may peruse. This is my latest Christmas book called Christmas by Candlelight. It's, um, my husband is, is an architect. He's the decorator of our home. He does a beautiful job with that. And so I let him do all the Christmas decorations and I play for him. I will sit the piano and improvise and inspire him to decorate the tree. <laughs> and so when we're done, he turns off the house lights and we just sit in the living room and I continue to play. And so I recorded a lot of that playing, just improvisation, and wrote this book called Candlelight, and it, uh, Christmas Candlelight. It's just quiet music. And it works well for Christmas Eve music if you have a place for piano. And uh, it's been, a, I think it's the best seller for Christmas music, right? 
Then uh, I want to share. These are Yes, this is Lorenz, yes, sir. And Lorenz has acquired Lilliness Piano, too. So that's another. Here's a more dramatic book. This is called Lost in Wonder of Love and Praise. This also features, uh, you're welcome to buy optionally, a CD with orchestra track. And if you ever want to just feel like you're performing with an orchestra, you can play this book with a CD. There's a separate order number for it. There's also a listening CD. I don't know that they're the same. I honestly don't remember. But this is a fully orchestrated book. But it is the piano parts are all written here, and they work just as beautifully and fully without orchestra. Called Lost in Wonder. I use this a lot in concerts. And I want to share with you, because I mentioned this yesterday, there's a new book called Inspirations. Joel Rainey, one of my best buddies, he and I wrote a book for four-hand piano, and this year we've reduced it to just two-hand piano. So it, it's different. It has a little white line, the four-hand version sitting over there, and it has songs like The Prayer, The Wind Beneath My Wings. Uh -huh. uh, this is more of a kind of a concert kind of piece book, or a weddings. Uh, oh, it's got some beautiful things. I can't even remember all this. Oh, good book. Uh, you raise me up, will you raise me up? Ave Maria, and some songs like that. This is really a good wedding resource. Next year, we're going to do a one piano version, a one hand piano version. <laughs> one of my favorites is called Gospel Gold. I love gospel music. This has a lot of favorites. I love to tell the story, uh, Saving Life and Shepherd Lee. It's got about as much half and half upbeat as it does slow. Speaking of that, there's another book for organ called Tidings of Joy, uh, Promises of Peace. And that book is a Christmas book for organ. It's half fast and half slow. And another book for organ, God Gave the Song. This is uh, a very easy two-staff version for organ beginners. And it's, it's a very easy to do, but we sold a ton of those. I, I need to write easier books. My latest piano book, and the last one I'll share with you, is Come From the Heart. And that's where my ministry is right now. Everything's got to come from the heart. Not so much from what you know here in the, in the head, but what you do here in the or your person. And <coughs> this is a book of a lot of gangster songs, like Because He Lives, I Believe in the Hill Call Mount Calvary. I've taken a lot of those and adapted them for piano. Um, there's more. Behold Our God is in that one. Behold Our God, the by our love that I mentioned to you, I will rise, I will rise on the eagle tree. Da -da 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 -da. The mercy tree, um, still my soul be still, that's a Getty thing. Is that something there? A lot of familiar, more contemporary stuff that we're doing nowadays from the heart for piano. You're welcome to peruse these, any of these and those as well. They have them all for sale over in the library. The last product I want to sell to you, or tell you about, not sell you, <laughs> is a project that after this story of the Heaven Story last year, I partnered with Tallowood Church to do a CD. Uh, I'm getting older, and I know retirement's coming pretty soon, but. Uh, I talked the relationship I now have with this church. I asked them to do a recording of my best choral anthems. It's 15 of my best-selling anthems. It's called Mary McDonald Live at Talwood. And uh, we did this last September. This is being nominated for a Grammy. So we're really excited about that. These are also for sale over in the thing over there with J.W. Pepper. It's a wonderful, like, just choral CD and let you hear that incredible choir. But, um, Thank you so much for your time. I'm proud on and on and on. It's love. And I, know I appreciate your investment of time. I wish I could have played more for you, but I don't want to ruin your thought of piano. So let's just have prayer together, folks, and then we'll send you on your merry way. Father, a lot has been said. A lot has been done. But at the core of it all, the source of it all is you. 
May our gift be reduced to what you would have it to be, so that you can take it and manifest a renewed sense and vigor of joy in what we do. We want to give it to you to steer our lives in the path you would have us to go. We bless our churches, Lord. Make us be a blessing. Help us to be better than we were when we came in here today, but to leave here with, with a sense of, of being a new leader, a leader of joy, a leader who brings uh, encouragement and sense to our people. And Father, within us, may our souls be rekindled with fire from above. May we take what we have learned and gained here this weekend into our churches and bring a start of revival in the church. We thank you for the gifts you have manifested in each one of us. We ask your anointing, your blessing. Just use us in any way you see fit and give us the commitment, the faithfulness to say yes and to go and serve you. Bless all these people in their day, in their travel, as they partake in lunch right now. We just give you all the blessings and lift you up for what you've done in us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, all the people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.